Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. June 25th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Good to have you on tonight. Um, Let me set up the show here in about 20 minutes. We're going to have joining us for the second time, Dr. Charles Whelan, um, economics professor at Dartmouth. The last time we had Dr. Whelan come on uh, the show, He talked to us about a just fascinating travel book, kind of a memoir about traveling with his family. Um, He's written other books as well, traveling around the world for a year. But tonight we're going to get a little more political. He actually started a – was one of the co-founders of Unite America, a national organization trying to bring people across the political aisle together. I don't want to steal too much of the thunder of the mission because he can explain it vastly better than I can. But he's going to talk to us about uh, Unite America and their goals and Michigan mission and just um, bipartisanship or efforts in America. So that should be good here in about 20 minutes. But until then, uh, Tim and I are going to discuss um, an international issue of the day or the weekend, I should say. Um, the sub dominated the first half of the week's news, and the second half of the week's news was dominated by an effort to overthrow Vladimir Putin. Um, in Russia. It appears that the effort has, I guess, didn't fully reach its goal, but it would not, I would not call it a, a failure either. Tim, tell us what you can. Well, wow, a lot, a lot happened. And, you know, nobody expected this either. All, all of a sudden, the Wagner group, probably 35,000 troops, And their leader here, they came over into Russia, and one of the first things they did was occupy the southern military headquarters, uh, the place where they actually are prosecuting their war in Ukraine from. And uh, he did it. The reason that that was given by uh, Prigozhin uh, the head of Wagner, is is that um, his troops were bombed by Russians. There's There's been a lot of yeah, yeah, and back and forth between him and senior military leadership in the days leading up to this. We, we knew it was tested, but nobody saw this coming. And what was stunning, David, was the ease with which they did it. They basically took that headquarters I was talking about in a major city in southern Russia uh, without firing a shot. Next thing you know, here they head up the main highway toward Moscow and uh, taking cities and villages along the way with very little or or no resistance at all. Um, They were welcomed by the people you saw on TV, like rock stars or something. By the average Russian citizen, they wanted to take selfies with them, do all this stuff. Uh, And they were within 200 miles of Moscow, and and the city was locking down, uh, setting up checkpoints, putting out troops, extra policemen. They were getting ready for what appeared to be a street fight. Uh, Vladimir Putin was... uh, he had gone on television and denounced, uh, you know, the whole of Wagner as traitors. And uh, next thing you know, the President Lukashenko in Belarus says he brokered a deal, stopped it. Prigozhin announced his troops were turning around, and Prigozhin's going to go into exile and criminal charges against him and soldiers are supposedly dropped. 
There we are with a lot of questions and very few answers, David. What do you think? I definitely think there's more answers. Um, I did hear about Fergosian. Apparently, back in 1993, he was involved in a, a coup attempt against um, Mikhail Gorbachev. So you're kind of like, well, I don't know what to think of him as an individual. I mean, I know Putin, who he is. And obviously, Gorbachev was a much more forward-thinking uh, elected official than um, our, our leader, I should say. Their, their, their politics gets kind of tricky in who was elected and who actually wasn't. Um, that, you know, but Gorbachev was a, a more of a good guy in our way of thinking than certainly Putin. So it's like, well, where does this guy stand You know, philosophically? We don't know. It could have been just another you know, power-hungry leader trying to take power in Russia. Um, but the fact that they were able to just rip through um, the Russian mainland shows you, I think, how stretched the uh, Russian army and really Russian people are and where they stand. So I think the implications for Ukraine are pretty important in that war. Honestly, the biggest winner out of this whole thing may be um, the leaders of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people because – it really shows how weak the Russians are, wouldn't you think? Well, yeah, um, there, there's a lot of questions. I mean, uh, what of Putin now? Is he weakened by all of this? Uh, what will his allies think? You know, what, what are they going to think in China and North Korea and places like that? And uh, what you alluded to, what of the war in Ukraine? Uh this can only be seen as a disaster. Russia simply is no longer a top-tier military or economic power. Now, they have nukes, plenty of those. Uh, I, I, I guess they're, they're online and work. Who knows? But that's about it. Uh, as far as the military we used to think of, the old Soviet Union, that's gone. As far as... Um, a power broker uh, uh, um, amongst, you know, they're, they're behind China now. They're, they're second tier. They, they're just going to have to admit that. If they want to go along with China, they're a follower of China. They're, they're no longer on equal footing with China or with anyone else. And so you got to wonder what's next for Vladimir Putin. And I'm going to tell you, Prigozhin. It, it, you know, we know Vladimir Putin's history, David. Prigozhin, I, I heard an expert say this morning, if he's in exile, he's not surrounded by his troops who can protect him and stuff like that. This expert gave Prigozhin 60 to 90 days to survive um, because that's the way Putin operates. The man's cold-hearted and, and you know, he just... He 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 will not respond well to this. There there's going to be a lot more. This was the opening salvo, and and there's going to be more coming. Uh, we'll, we'll just we'll just have to see. But this was uh, earth shattering. Yeah, I think I saw a quote that was back from like the 19 teens, um, and it may have actually been Vladimir Lenin that said it. Like in Russia. You'll have decades where nothing happens, and then days in which decades happen. Um, and it really well, feels like things move well, pretty quickly. Well, it, their, it, um, it, it, it's also it's also if you've ever seen the television show Game of Thrones, a recurring theme in the Game of Thrones: if you attack the king, you kill the king, and. That did not happen here. They they attacked or started an attack on the power structure in Russia, and they stopped and and turned around. Well, you know, Putin's not the sort of guy that's going to say, well, that's okay, just don't let it happen again, ha-ha. No, no, you know, that's that's not the way it goes. There There is, there is going to be some bills to pay by somebody on account of this. Um, and I guess the next thing we see is, 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 is where does this go with Ukraine now? 
Yeah, that's the kind of part that I'm more interested in because I just get the sense that, you know, the Russian people are going to have to topple Putin. I um, mean, it's going to be more of a groundswell than just this group and this one leader because I really don't, like I said, I don't know his motivations. And so I'm kind of leery given his history. But if it forces Russia just to give up on Ukraine, possibly, I mean, I already heard that there was part of the Crimean Peninsula that the Ukraine retook for the first time in, you know, years since mm-hmm. that first invasion yes. years ago. Yes. And so that's really significant um, showing that they're going to push out. So they may end up getting, you know, the, you know, the whole of their uh, Ukrainian land back, Putin out. He then has to figure out his own survival in his country. I mean, I, I've heard and heard that, you did have a lot of deaths of despair in Russia among the male population before this war, but this war has just accelerated the um, decline of the male population in particular in Russia. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you, that's good. If you, even if you have a decline of male or female population in your country, that's not going to be good for your long-term growth prospects. But if yeah. you are a country and, who wants to wage war and you see military as being a male-dominated and, and, endeavor, that's really bad for you. Yeah, and, you know, on the political front, domestically, um, you know, a lot of our military and civilian leadership in Washington, D.C., you know, spent a rather nervous weekend. Uh, let's don't forget that Russia has 6,000 nuclear weapons if that country were to suddenly and it was close were to suddenly destabilize and and anarchy break out what 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 then you know what what happens then six thousand nuclear weapons are some of them going to disappear or some of them going to uh end up in even more unfriendly countries uh we 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 have to think about things like that. Would what replaced Putin be even worse than him? Uh, so so we, we, we had a lot to look at, and I'm sure that all of Europe spent a nervous weekend as well. Uh, I just yeah, I don't know what is next. All the NATO leaders, you know, you know, had an emergency, you know, kind of teleconference. Right. With folks meeting and all that, uh, I thought right. when you said domestically speaking, I did see that you know Donald Trump took this as a chance to defend Vladimir Putin, which would be to the surprise of no one. But then yeah. even more disturbing well, in a lot of ways. I saw. Uh, I just happened because I don't watch as much cable news as you do, but I, I watched a little bit. Um, I think it was just yesterday or last night, and uh, Jim Acosta had. The congressman from Knox County that we talked about a few weeks ago, Tim Burchett, right. and he said, right. and he started really kind of defending Russia in a way, and he said, you know, about like our involvement, we're giving arms to the Ukrainian people. He goes, I just don't think the American people for that. It's just too close and too much like Vietnam. And I'm like, oh, how in the world do we elect great. people to Congress that actually don't understand Vietnam? Don't understand what's going on in a current war. And this guy was on the Foreign um, Relations you know, Committee, see, or just so yeah. just so, so deceitful. They're just going to sell see, nonsense uh, to their people because that's uh, what Donald Trump uh, thinks. A couple of disturbing things are associated with that. Now, according to that NBC News poll that that you sent me part of earlier today, fifty-two percent of Republicans in this country, do not support our involvement in Ukraine, which might indicate that, and, and, and you know, if Donald Trump were to take over again, that would end our involvement in Ukraine. What would that mean? Well, we spend about 5% of our military budget, that's all, on helping to arm Ukraine. But that 5% translates to 50% of Ukraine's military stuff, 50%. Without it, you know, guess who's going to win that war? We can't allow that to happen. Why can these people 
not understand that? Why can these people not understand that, no, Vladimir Putin is not our friend? You know, former KGB agents are not friends with the United States. This man wants to reconstitute the old Soviet Union, and he means to do it by any means necessary, including violent means, including invasions. He's already showed that in Ukraine before and in northern Georgia and some other places. And, you know, we need to stay where we are. We need to support this country. We need to put a stop to this right now because Putin will not stop. Why can yeah, they I not remember the old saying. That? Yeah, the old saying, partisanship ends at the country's uh, borders, ends at the ocean. Yeah. Um, this We're getting to the point where we're so partisan, we don't even agree on simple, what should be simple things like Putin is bad and what he's done to Ukraine is, um, you know, out of bounds of domestic, you know, the way you conduct international policy. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and switch gears because obviously there are far more astute people to discuss these foreign relations than we are. Um, all of this makes me want to have our friend Joseph Lindley on the program again uh, sometime, uh, hopefully even late in the summer. But let's get back to our buy, sell, hold. And we, like we said last week when we talked about Chris Christie, these folks keep getting in the race. We keep having to discuss them. I am not going to go in like chronological order because, honestly, I would have to make my own timeline to keep up. But um, I'm just going to start off with the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. Um, and before I actually get to Francis Suarez, let me welcome into the Kudzu Vine, Catherine Smith. Glad you could join us, Catherine. Hello. Greetings from Atlanta. Sorry I'm late. Yes. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, talk about buy, sell, hold on Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. And so he entered the race, and I have heard some interesting backstories about why he has actually um, jumped into this race, so we may get into that. But, Tim, um, Francis Suarez, mayor of Miami, uh, a fun, vibrant city down there in the southern tip of Florida, buy, sell, hold on uh, Mayor Francis Ah, gee. This guy voted for Hillary Clinton and for Andrew (laughs) Gillum. Toast sell. (laughs) There's so much more there, though. Uh, Catherine, um, buy, sell, hold on him. Sell. He he doesn't have a chance. But t- yeah. tell us some of the backstory. I, I don't know any backstory about this, so I'd like okay, to hear well, what. Okay, let's go ahead. I, I mean, obviously, it, it is such a long shot. Even if he didn't have these intriguing, you know, wrinkles and backstories to his campaign, I would also sell him. But I do want to tell you, I've heard that even though he voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, he has actually been encouraged to get in this race to help Donald Trump. And you mentioned, Tim, that he voted for Andrew Gillum in um, 2018 against Ron DeSantis. He is getting in this race to hurt Ron DeSantis. They had, their feud is much more deep and visceral, and so that's why I've been told that he's getting in the race to siphon off some Florida support um, from Ron DeSantis to where it would weaken him further. Now – I don't know that all this is even necessary. Ron DeSantis is doing so yeah. poorly. It, it seems like a bit much. But um, it does make an interesting story. I really – I'll be honest. You know, I went to Miami back in January, and I know a little bit of Miami. I was kind of surprised at a Republican mayor, but I get the idea he's not the average 2023 Republican. Miami seems like a much more cosmopolitan (laughs) city. Um, I I think they're very um, gay and lesbian friendly. Um, You know, they're trying to recruit tech industries down in Miami. That may be a bit misguided with climate change, Um, but they are trying to do these things. Those are not pillars of the salt of the earth Republican Party. Yeah, but David. 
What, David, look, let, let, let's be honest here. Let's be forthright. He's going to go to Ron DeSantis voters and say, you know, instead of voting for Ron DeSantis, vote for me. Yeah, I voted for Hillary Clinton and, and you know, for, for a, a Democrat for governor of Florida. But how about it, Ron DeSantis voters, vote for me. Who? who? No. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Uh-uh, never. No, I don't. I don't see where he gets his ground swell of support. I mean, uh, to me, this does layer more into the confusing and interesting and complicated question of what is going on in South Florida with, um, particularly, Latino voters down there. Um, let's go ahead. Y'all keep discussing um, uh, this. A fact, and I'll check on something on the producer side. Okay, you know, Catherine, you agree with me, don't you? That I mean, this this guy, he doesn't act like a Republican. He doesn't sound like a Republican. We know the types of Republicans we're talking about. They have the same uh, hardcore Republicans in the Panhandle of Florida that they have, uh, you know, up here in North Georgia. And this guy, All right. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of him getting 10 votes, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, and also this idea that he's going to, that he's doing it to help Trump. Trump doesn't need any <laughs> help in Florida no. right now. And, and, and he's not going to pull DeSantis voters away who are almost like Trump voters. Yeah. So, yeah I mean, it's. DeSantis is going after the same vote that Trump's going after, and none of those voters are going to be very interested in Francis Suarez. Exactly. Um, if David is not with us, yeah, no, I'm, I'm Tim. I am back, and um, I am excited to bring back onto the show for the second time, Dr. Charles Whelan. Welcome back, Dr. Whelan. Good to be with you. Yes. Well, we know last time we had you on, we talked about your fascinating uh, travel book, a memoir uh, in a way about your family's year-long vacation around the world. But we knew you had more political uh, and other writings as well to to discuss, and so we want to get you back on to talk about your founding of Unite America. So tell us about um, the organization. Well, it's been a long story. I guess I'll go back to, way to the beginning. So I am somebody who's a policy wonk at heart. My training is in public policy. I have a master's and a Ph.D. in public policy, so we sit around and talk about whether the inflation measure for Social Security is accurate or not, things that most people don't care a whole lot about, but also health care and lots of other issues. Uh, but I have an interest in politics because politics is how you do public policy, And I founded United America First, which was called the Centrist Project, mostly because I had the sense that our political institutions were not solving our public policy challenges. Yes. And so um, the organization's been around a good many years and has quite a staff. Um, In the last few years, um, you know, our politics continues to get more and more contentious. How has that kind of caused your organization to evolve and, and face, you know, cause you challenges? Well, we need a theory of change. If you're going to try and change policy through politics, you've got to have some way that you think people are going to behave differently. And I would point out that what we're concerned with is not one side or the other. We try to be nonpartisan, so there are issues policing and right now some of the gender issues and abortion where people have very strong points of view and it feels a little bit like if one side wins, the other side loses. But there are other issues like the environment, fixing entitlement programs since they last, making health care more affordable where we just need to make some progress. And so our theory of change is we need to build some kind of connective tissue that allows our politicians to behave in ways that are more conducive to solving problems. Yes. And I was going to ask you one more question about Unite America. I'm probably going to come back in and ask some other questions in a bit. But as I was looking about your uh, board and organization, I noticed that you had added recently former Georgia Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux, 
um, on to the board, and I know she has um, that little bit of bipartisan credentials. She's a good Democrat, but she worked with Republicans in the state house um, to achieve some, you know, budget uh, measures. I think that actually helped education, maybe more at the higher level. So tell us about how you brought her in. For exactly that reason, she was somebody who was committed to problem solving, has a clear point of view, obviously, but doesn't let that get in the way, and was very frustrated by how the system was working and felt that what we were trying to do is consistent with what she's trying to do now that she's no longer in the House. And so she was a natural fit for the organization. I will say we had a board meeting a couple weeks ago. It was the first time I met Carolyn in person. It was terrific. It was also Really interesting, we were at a dinner to see her sitting across the table from Jason Altmeyer, who's a former Republican member of Congress, and they had a tremendous amount in common. And so that's what we try and do is bring together people who want to solve problems. But they tend not to be on the extremes because those folks are not necessarily the bridge builders, but who are the people who can build a bridge in ways that allow us to get intellectual traction on issues we care about? So what I'm hearing is you're not going to be the person to solve the rift between Marjorie Taylor and Lauren Boebert. <laughs> no, I'm going, to, I'm going to be the guy saying stop looking over at dumpster fire and because it's just that you know, nothing good is going to happen over there, certainly if you care about health care policy and infrastructure. I'm saying look over here. You know, there are 435 members of Congress. Look, let's look at the 250 who might actually be able to work together. Um, and not look at the 10 or 12 who seem to get most of the airtime. Yes. Well, I'm going to pass it to Tim. He'll pass it to Catherine. I do have some questions about bipartisanship or, or partisan rank or what have you, but not um, the, the actual organization. Tim? Oh, good evening, Dr. Whelan. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, good to talk let's to you. Start at the, let's, let's just start at the beginning of, of, of this country. Uh, a lot of our founding fathers were not in favor of political parties. So should political parties exist now? Aren't they part of the partisan problem? They have certainly become part of the problem. There's no doubt about that. And it, your first point is also worth noting. Not only were there no political parties in the Constitution, people are shocked that they mm-hmm. weren't there at the creation. Political primaries are not in the Constitution. Those are a relatively recent phenomenon, and I would argue mm-hmm. that primaries contribute to a lot of the problem. But Washington warned about factions in his farewell address. The Federalist Papers warned about factions. So if I were to put a benevolent spin on parties, I would say they're good for organizing people. They're good at broadcasting our views mobilizing people to action, but when they become tribal, which is how they are now, where if you say the world is round, I'm just going to say reflexively it's flat because I'm in a different tribe, then it mm-hmm. becomes a deterrent to actually governing a country. Mm-hmm. Now, when addressing election reform, which would you say is more effective, legislation or, say, ballot initiative? It depends entirely on the state that you happen to be in. We're fighting mm-hmm. on both fronts. One of our big series of change at the moment is that primaries are a big problem because it, it combined with gerrymandering. So we've got so many gerrymandered seats. So there are all these seats with boundaries drawn by state legislatures to advantage whatever mm-hmm. party controls, and both parties are merciless at it when they happen to have control. So they draw these safe seats, and everybody recognizes that, and then – Primary voters go and pick the whoever controls the seat. The primary determines who's going to hold that seat in Congress. But what we forget is that that means that there's no general election battle, and the winner of the primary is effectively the winner of the election. Well, primary voters don't look like most American voters, and uh-huh. so you tend to get more extreme Democrats, more extreme Republicans. Those people then go to the House. And they know the only way they're going to lose this safe seat is if they're challenged in the primary by someone in their own party who's more extreme than they are. So if it's right. Democrats looking over their left shoulder, Republicans looking over their right shoulder, which means that there's no incentive. And in fact, there's quite a bit to doing the kinds of things, particularly compromise, that they're required for legislation. I mean, if you had mm-hmm. primaries 
and social media and C-SPAN and MSNBC and Fox News at the time of the Constitutional Convention, there'd be no compromise. We, you know, we'd still be in Philadelphia or we would have crumbled. Mm-hmm. So um, one thing you mentioned that, that, that I too favor is independent redistricting. You know, independent commissions or, or whatever. But realistically, is it possible to convince partisan state legislatures to give up that power? It's really tough because the party out of power, of course, is all in favor of it because they know that the boundaries are being drawn to their disadvantage. But then as soon as they, they're out of power, so they can't actually make the change, and then if they manage to get back into power and you read to them everything they've said about anti-gerrymandering, suddenly they walk it back. We actually saw this in Virginia where I believe it was the Republicans were in power. They were gerrymandering. Democrats said this is terrible. Then the Democrats managed to win a majority, and suddenly they were thinking gerrymandering <laughs> might not be so bad. But, and this is, I think, part of our mission, there was a bipartisan group of legislators who were saying that gerrymandering is bad regardless of who's in power, and they, they managed to hold up. So the Democrats in that coalition, even when the Democrats held power, stuck to their word, and Virginia got I, – I don't know exactly what their mechanism is, but something that is more in the direction of independent redistricting. But your, your point is a good one, which is if you control the power, nobody's going to relinquish it voluntarily. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you one more uh, generalized question, then I'm going to send it over to Catherine for some more questions. And I'm sure you've been asked this before, but there are many in this country who would say that although the efforts of a group like yours at moderation and nonpartisan reform are noble, they really have no chance of success in this highly charged partisan atmosphere that we're seeing in this nation right now. What, what would you say to those folks? I would point to Alaska. Alaska is one of the most interesting and I would argue encouraging cases in recent years. So in 2020, when all eyes were obviously on the presidential race, Alaska passed a referendum to get rid of their partisan primaries and replace them with a single open primary. The top four finishers, regardless of party, advance out of that primary. So everybody gets to vote, Democrats, Republicans, independents. And the four people who advance could be three Democrats and a Republican. It could be two independents, a Republican, Democrat. Top four get onto the ballot and then the winner is selected by ranked choice voting. And that had an immediate and powerful effect the next time people went to the, to the ballot. So in 2022, we saw a number of things. Uh, the first is that Sarah Palin didn't win. And I don't think Yay. it's an anti-Sarah. Well, it's not an anti-Sarah Palin thing. It's not an anti-Republican thing. But Sarah Palin is one of those folks who's relatively divisive. There's kind of a ceiling on her support. And so right. what happened in ranked choice voting, there were two Republicans and a Democrat in the final round. The fourth candidate dropped out. A high proportion of the people who picked the other Republican as their first choice picked a Democrat rather than Sarah Palin as their second choice. That tells you a lot. It means that you get a winner who has broader support. Now, in that same election, Lisa Murkowski, Republican senator, was reelected. And she had voted to impeach Trump. So in a red state, when the whole state is voting and she doesn't have to run a Republican primary, she gets reelected. So arguably that's the reflection of what Alaskans want, not just primary voters in the Republican primary. And then at the same time, Alaskans elected a relatively conservative governor. So for, you know, he campaigned in a way that got broad support. So you have a range of outcomes that I would argue all kind of push in the direction of giving better voice to what the entire state wants instead of just the small, highly partisan folks who show up in a primary in a gerrymandered district. Well, I thank you for that excellent example and analysis. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Good evening. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. It's Good to great to have you on the show again. Um, I... Uh, 
I read some of the things that you've written, and I, I applaud the um, the effort, and I think it's great. And I wish I wish you every success. But I'm just really um, curious about how. I mean, it's got to be. We've got to look at this in very, very small steps, right? Because there's like like we've all said, it's so contentious right now that how do we i mean what's your vision of how we actually move this forward and um accomplish what you're talking about i yeah. i'm just i i might just be you know <laughs> jaded or something or too old <laughs> but it just feels well, so we're feels so tight right now that i, I but go ahead i'm sorry well, I'd say they're kind of – I'd say three things. One is uh, you're not wrong. I mean, it's a, as somebody who's old enough to have been around for a long time and spoken to a lot of politicians, it is worse. It's not your imagination. I've spoken to uh, – I play golf with Judd Gregg, who's a former senator from New Hampshire, relatively conservative guy in an old New England kind of way. And he used to, to write legislation with Ted Kennedy. So they overlapped not much at all, but when they did agree on something, they'd write legislation because they were both there to govern. And if they disagreed on the other 97%, well, then let's leave that for tomorrow. There's 3%. Let's act on the 3%. So we have lost that capacity for now, which is quite dangerous. I guess on a more encouraging note, I would say, look, there have been other dark periods in the United States, the 60s, the Depression, World War II, Civil Rights Movement. And I think there's some truth to what Winston Churchill said, which is, you know, America always does the right thing after it's exhausted every other possibility. <laughs> and so, you know, and so I don't know, I keep thinking we've hit bottom, but marrying the baby not. You know, I, I do think that the country has it in us to do right by it. It's just not our first impulse. So it, it requires an effort. And then I think I would say that your point is correct. It takes baby steps. And we think of kind of three overlapping circles. Is it impactful? So if we were to do this, would it actually make a difference? And that's true of a lot of things, campaign finance reform and so on. But then we kind of overlay the second circle, which is, is it achievable? So can we actually get it done? And that takes a number of things off the table. Like, I don't think we can do campaign finance reform in a world where Citizens United is the current law. And then the third circle is, is it bipartisan, which is, does it not, we don't want to do something that inherently in the long run advances one party over the other. And so we think that independent redistricting, which has come up, ranked choice voting, making primary elections as broad as possible. These are steps in the direction of electing more people who have more interest in governing as opposed to grandstanding, scoring political points and so on. Okay, well, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, all but primaries. Um, I always believe, I always look at primaries as the party's opportunity to select their candidate. And I've, I've never really been in favor of open primaries. I've always resisted the impulse that some people have to switch parties from their natural party uh, to vote for an, the the opposite party because they're trying to finagle the results to get either a worse candidate that's going to be easier to beat or a better candidate who, if they win, won't be so bad. I, I have a lot. I, I mean, it's one of those conversations that we have, you know, with friends who say, "Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm no, gonna I, vote for I, Let me agree and, strenuously with there because I think that's just. First of all, I think it's, it's kind of disingenuous, but I think it's, it's terribly dangerous, right? You have the party saying, look, mm-hmm. this carrot candidate, the other party is so terrible <laughs> that we're, we're definitely going to be it. Well, what if that so terrible person actually gets elected? Yeah, right. right. And, that's what, yeah, so, that's yeah. what I always say. <laughs> that's absolutely what I, I say. I don't think you ever can honestly vote for somebody because you think they're the worst. <laughs> like it's just, it's just not the way the world is supposed to. Maybe I'm naive in there, but I just think that's a dangerous game to play. I mean, I think under ranked choice voting and open primaries, parties can still get together and say, all right, four of us are all Democrats. You know, Bob's going to be the one who runs. The three of us are going to support Bob. There are things you can do privately as a party to maximize the chances that you elect somebody who shares your views. 
But I think the, the big problem with primaries is so many voters are effectively excluded from picking the person who is ultimately going to represent them. If you're in a gerrymandered district, your primary doesn't matter, maybe. Or if you're an independent in a state with closed primaries, you just get whatever two candidates happen to show up on the ballot. So I think there are a lot of ways that are not optimal about how we put our choices on that ballot that we could fix and probably still protect what you like about parties, which is, look, we're, you know, we believe in certain things and we want to organize ourselves and improve the chances that we're represented. So then what happens with, um, like, conventions where, you know, a party does select a slate of candidates that they're supporting? I guess it doesn't really have an impact on that. Well, you could do it a lot. Of, you know, for example, California's got top two primaries. They don't have partisan primaries anymore, so two Republicans could run against each other, two Democrats could run against each other, and so on. Um, that's after, you know, after the primary, so a bunch of people run the top two advance, you know, whoever the top two vote-getters are. But you could, if there were three Republicans, you could get together and kind of agree that only one of you is going to run, or if one of you is not doing well, you'll drop out and endorse the other two. And there's nothing stopping people who share a point of view from collaborating. You just want an election that allows the participation of the most voters and is likely to produce a winner who has an incentive to solve problems. So in the case of Alaska or California, where you've got to go back to all the voters, not just to your primary voters, I think that you're going to, you're going to do things in the legislature or in Congress that are more consistent with what all the voters want. I think it's about fixing that incentive imbalance. I guess I, I guess I can understand that. I absolutely agree with you on ranked choice voting, um, especially in a state like Georgia where we have um, runoffs. So we yeah, have, oh yeah. If if you don't get fifty percent plus one, then you know two months, you know whatever, a few weeks or sometime later, we have another election, which costs a fortune for the, the fortune state to run. Low. And the yeah. turnout I mean, is terrible. <laughs> Right, and, and you know, uh, ranked choice so voting, always... yeah, yeah, yeah. Ranked choice voting is effectively an instant runoff. That's another way to describe right. it. You kind of you put mm-hmm. your first choice, your second choice, your third choice. People are knocked out. Yeah, it's a much more formal yeah, way. That, and I do think that over, over time, it does improve the contentiousness because if you're running and you're like, you you have something in common with one of the other candidates, like you agree on certain values or issues, you're going to be careful not to slam them too much because yeah, you're, counting oh. on, they're, you're counting on their voters to, count, to vote for you second. Yeah, and so you might I think even say just, something nice about them. I mean, think about right. that. You know, I, I'm running against Denise. You know, I, I think I'm a better candidate, but here are the three things I really like about her environmental policies, which is unheard of. In the current right. environment. So I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I really am excited about these ideas. I'm just so I've been around for a long. You know, Tim and I are. I've been around for a long time and have seen a lot of ideas come and go. But I, I'm really um, hoping that you have success. And uh, I'm looking. I, I'm, I'm checking y'all out and keeping an eye on it and, and wishing you all the best. I think it's really great. So well, I now think I'm there's a little. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say there's a little contagion effect. So, in so Alaska passed ranked choice voting in 2020 and 2022, Nevada did a nearly identical reform by citizens ballot initiative. And that question came up earlier. You know, in a lot of states, the legislature doesn't want to touch this because the status quo is what got them elected. But some states are more amenable to ballot initiatives than others. Nevada passes, so if their law is you've got to pass the same referendum in two consecutive cycles, so they've got to pass it again in 2024. But both the Republicans and the Democrats opposed it, and yet the population passed it. And so if we can get hmm. it passed again in 2024, then Nevada will look just like Alaska. And, you know, that's two states, wow. a very different kind of state. It gets easier. You learn how to message it. People watch it work in Alaska. So that was very encouraging. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good point. Huh. I'll have to look at that. Thanks so much. This has been very informative and very helpful. Go ahead, David. 
Yes. Well, Dr. Wheeler, I did have a question about the no labels campaign. Now, obviously, your group's not in, involved, your organization's not involved with them, but they've made a lot of news because people fear they may be a spoiler, if you will, and they're not been real transparent about their funding. From what you've seen and read and heard about the no labels organization, what are your thoughts on them and their efforts? Well, there's some things about what they're doing that I like a lot. So, for example, they have created the Problem Solver Caucus in the House. So it's an equal number of Republicans and Democrats. They meet together. It's one of the few bipartisan organizations that's actually continuing to function and so on. I like the spirit of that. I think the caucus has not been as effective as it could be. They could get together and affect the outcome for Speaker of the House. They could change the rules. There are a lot of things they could be more powerful about. But I like the idea of working, creating this bipartisan working group in Congress. And a lot of the members of Congress whom I really admire have been members of the Problem Solver Caucus. I am very concerned about the presidential, the possible presidential bid. That no label is talking about getting ballot access for the potential third-party candidate. And yes, because of the Electoral College, it's extremely unlikely that a third-party candidate is going to win. And, and if he or she doesn't win, then, as you know, if they deny one party or the other majority, it goes to the House. Right now, I don't really want the House picking my president for all kinds of reasons. I'm not sure I ever want the House. I mean, even the framer said the House was going to be kind of the hot-headed institution. Um, so I think it's a bit of a dangerous game. They're correctly gauging that America wants better options. If, you, if we think this is going to be a replay of Trump versus Biden, you've seen the same polls I have. Nobody's excited about that. But the rules of the game are the rules of the game, and a third-party candidate could give us an outcome that is not what most voters want. Yes. Well, we'll continue to watch them. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Whelan, before you leave us, um, tell our listeners how they can kind of access and learn more about um, Unite America. It's really simple. We're at uniteamerica.com or .org, sorry, and uh, it explains what we're trying to do, our various campaigns around the country. We're, we work a little bit like a venture capital fund where we are a funding mechanism and a source of support for groups that are doing really interesting reform work at the state level. So the Alaska referendum that I spoke about was kind of a homegrown effort, but we certainly created a lot of support for that. Same in Nevada, fundraising support, messaging support. So if they go to Unite America on the web, they will find us and hopefully they'll be, they'll be inspired to think that there is some path forward that's better than what we're mired in right now. Yes. Well, such a fascinating discussion and we know that you'll be following um, the political races and goings on to the house and Senate moving forward. You've also written other books we've yet to discuss, so we'd like to have you on again in the future if you're so willing. I would love to come back, and hopefully next time I will be talking about another win in another state, and everybody will feel a little more optimistic. That'd be that great. Would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Thank you, sir. Right, yes. <laughs> Thank right. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Charles Whelan economics professor from Dartmouth and one of the co-founder, the founder of Unite America, author extraordinaire, um, just, a, just a great guest. And if you hadn't listened to his travel book, it is very funny but also very insightful and entertaining. Um, we got probably about 12 more minutes, so we got enough time. I think we can at least get through one more of our buy-sell holes. Uh, we probably gave Francis um, – Suarez has more airtime than he's probably gotten in a lot of other venues, but we're going to move on to <laughs> former Vice President Mike Pence. He has been oh. kind of circling around the shadows of running for president, and in the past few weeks, he finally, I guess, made it pseudo-official where he has a website and, and can raise money and actually do electioneering activities, and so Mike Pence, he's been asked about in every poll. Never seen Pence. Pence seemed to get in double digits. I believe he was in 7% in today's NBC poll. Um, but he is running. And uh, Catherine, buy, sell, hold on Mike Pence. Oh, dear. I think I, I think I just have to sell him. He's just so boring. I can't. 
I just I can't imagine him captivating enough voters to have any uh, impact on the race in general. I just I don't see a path for him to have any juice. So I'm going to sell him. Catherine, you say he's so boring, but I haven't watched him. But I heard there's a series of movies called Magic Mike. I just thought that was the Mike Pence story. Am I wrong? <laughs> Not quite. Cool. about something different. about Mike Pence, Magic Mike. I mean, you know, um, I don't know. Well, Tim, buy, sell, hold Mike Pence. Well, I mean, you know, have to be realistic. I mean, the, the, the man's a rock real conservative Republican, you know, in the tradition of, of Reagan or somebody, I guess. But, look, uh, he and a handful of other candidates are vying for the votes of perhaps one-third of the Republican primary and caucus voters in this country. Uh, I think Pence has a chance to finish third nationally. Unfortunately, David, third place is going to be at about that 7% mark that you noted uh, moments ago. Have to sell him. Yeah, I'm going to sell him as well. Um, There was a constituency for Mike Pence in the past. You know, a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. uh, Pat Roberts passed away. We I don't know if we even got to talk about it much. But that constituency that that had developed, I guess he and Jerry Falwell and some others had built this um, religious conservative voter. And Mike Pence is very much cut from that cloth. Um, And if we were still in, say, 1995, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. 88 for that matter, you know, Mike Pence may have a better chance. But in the meantime, the religious right has probably probably shrunk a little bit. Part of it has become kind of convoluted. I think our guest over a year ago, uh, Dr. Dumay, when she talked about how there's now this muscular Christianity where um, it's not the same, you know, even evangelical Christianity that it used to be. Um, those kind of folks may even gravitate more towards Donald Trump, even though that is bizarre when you think about what they uh, should stand for and what Donald Trump stands for. And then also, um, I think a lot of the new voters that have come into the Republican Party, while they're probably the kind of folks that probably drink out of a, a you know, a coffee mug that may have a you know Bible verse on it, they're not necessarily the kind of folks that go to church every week. Um, and so, you know, I mean, they're they're, they're religious, but or, but they're not um, practicing all the time, and that's more. You know, Mike Pence's wheelhouse. So the demographics of the Republican Party are not in his favor. He is not very exciting. He wasn't very exciting as, as vice president. And then let's finally say one more thing. A lot of the Republican base hates him because he um, didn't just basically try to steal the election um, for Donald Trump. He, he followed the Constitution. He followed the law. He listened to former Indiana Senator Dan Quayle about doing the right thing. Glad he did the right thing. Kudos for him for doing the right thing. But it sure ain't going to help him in the Republican primary, and I just can't see him getting to the next level to even speculating what a, you know, a Pence-Biden race would even look like. Um, let's see if we can get through another one of these folks. And we got the North Carolina – I'm sorry, the North Carolina governor, the North Dakota governor. Um, um, there was another there, I think we had four candidates That we could have possibly covered Well I know we won't get all four um, And Will Hurd That's the other one Let me, I want to talk about Will Hurd um, We got about six minutes uh, Former Congressman Will Hurd And it's so funny we actually talked about him um, all, We're going to talk about him On the day that we had um, Charles Whelan Talking about bipartisanship And to me, Will Hurd is one of those bipartisan faces where people could actually work across the aisle. Um, Tim, buy, sell, hold on Will Hurd's candidacy. Oh, I want to buy or hold him so bad. He's uh, he he is that type of Republican that you 
just mentioned, and they are really, really, really an endangered species now in that party, and it's really sad to see. And I, I, before we went on the air, I, I asked you a question. I'm going to ask it now. The question I would ask of Will Hurt is, is why? Why are you running? Because he he's he's a smart political guy. He's got to see that barring just something incredible, there there he, he probably doesn't break five percent in in any primary or caucus. And so I am forced to sell him. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and let Catherine uh, buy, sell, hold, and then I'll answer maybe. I really can't answer why, but I'll answer some things about Will Hurd. Catherine? Yeah, I have to sell him. Um, I agree with you both that, you know, he's the kind of Republican that we sort of long for, but mm-hmm. no one knows who he is. He's, mm-hmm. You know, it's an uphill battle for someone with poor name recognition as well as um, values and history that is contrary to the sort of uh, general um, opinions of the the Republican primary voter. So, you know, maybe maybe next time someone like him can um, have some influence. But right now, I think you got to sell him. Yeah, because he's I not even a, told- he's not even a viable. Um, vice presidential um, pick because he would be in constant conflict with, you know, what whomever, you know, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or whatever, it wouldn't be a, a good pairing. Yeah, I, I think we've told exactly, you know, we, we've told the tale on him. Catherine, you said you're the, he's the kind of Republican you like. Tim, you talked about how much you like him. I listened to his book, Reboot. I wanted to have him on the show. I was never even told no. We tried to come to a date with his people. Uh, we still may get him at some point. I really like him as a Republican, too. I think he actually is a problem solver. And that's why you have to sell him, because us three staunch Democrats think so highly of him. And so, <laughs> and so that's why he's yeah. And he's not. It's not like a Republican saying, oh, I love Tulsi Gabbard or I love Robert F. Kennedy Jr. You know, because they're just a, you know, I, I don't know what the end game is there, but he's not that. He's just somebody that's kind of middle of the road and will talk about problems in a real way and look at solutions. I don't think he's always going to agree with us on everything, but he's going to tell the truth on things. I really, what I would like to see happen is I'd like to see, and it may be after the 2024 election, is if President Biden sat down with the Republicans and said, look, we're going to really talk – if you want to really talk about immigration, we'll really talk about immigration. I'm going to set up a commission. I want to be bipartisan, and to show you how bipartisan it is, I'm setting it up as a Democrat, but I'll make Will Hurd the head of the commission that will start talking about this and looking at the issues because Will Hurd really has good issues. He says, you know – all this build the wall and all this nonsense is silly. He goes, if you actually want to keep people coming in legally and not illegally, you do more stuff at the actual checkpoints with um, facial recognition. And actually talked about how you would keep people from illegally crossing at the actual checkpoints because that's really where a lot of people come through. They come through actually legal points and just aren't um, you know, detected in the right way. Um, so it is going to be an interesting campaign. If he actually can get on to some of these conservative news sources and just be who he truly is and talk, he may serve a purpose because maybe some of these Republican-leaning voters hear something different, and it kind of opens up their minds and broadens their horizons. Um, and so that could be <laughs> the most valuable thing out of his candidacy. Um but at the end of the day, it's not going to be a winning formula. Uh, guys, I know we hadn't talked about North, uh, North Dakota governor. There may be more folks to come in. But honestly, for me, the reason I have to sell everybody is because nobody's going to beat Donald Trump. Do you see that changing, Catherine? I don't see that changing. Tim? 
No, and that goes for DeSantis, too. Uh, the polls keep showing he's not going to beat Trump either. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I, if you said, who's the front runner for the Republicans in 2028, I'd say, well, until somebody, something changes, I'd say Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Know, they just can't, they can't quit him um, yeah. for anything. Well, guys, we are having a summer break. Um, we've talked about this, but and we do have our next show set up. I'm so excited because we're going to come back from that three weeks off on July 23rd, and Simon Rosenberg um, of the Hopium Chronicles, that's his new endeavor on Substack, um, he's still out there really getting great information. Uh, Simon Rosenberg is going to come on the show on July 23rd when we reappear um, after, like I said, a summer hiatus. But until then, from the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. Everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first. Step into the world of power, loyalty. And luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.